Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you out here this morning. Such a beautiful morning, and as we already heard, probably the last of the beautiful weather we've been having, at least for now. So we can mourn that in our own way this morning. Um, If you haven't already, please turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, we always have extra Bibles just on the other side of these two kind of middle dividers here. Um, If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to grab one. It's going to be on page 683 in our community Bible. Um, And as you're turning, I'd love to tell you about a comedian who is a favorite in the staff hallways here at Christ Community. His name is Jim Gaffigan. Any Jim Gaffigan fans here? Basically, if you've ever heard a joke about bacon, Jim Gaffigan is the guy who made it. Um, And he's a guy who we really love around here. And recently he wrote a book, which is so well titled, Dad is Fat. And in this book, Dad is Fat, Jim Gaffigan tells his story of being the father of five very young children. I think uh, all under the age of six. So five under the age of six. That's kind of a lot. Um, and even though we're, we're not all parents in here, he does spend a little bit of time talking about this, this feeling that we all are acquainted with. And I'd love to read just a little excerpt for you from Dad is Fat. I wasn't ready for the guilt of being a parent. I was raised Catholic, so guilt is a familiar friend. Guilt is as much a part of the Catholic culture as is rooting for Notre Dame. I grew up with a God is watching you, so you better not make him mad mentality. I felt guilty for feeling good, for feeling bad, or for feeling nothing. (laughs) Attending confession was supposed to alleviate some of the guilt, but I always ended up feeling guilty for not telling the priest everything I felt guilty about, so I stopped going to confession. Then I felt guilty that I stopped going to confession. That's a lot of guilt. Just when I thought nothing could top Catholic guilt, I became acquainted with parental guilt, which totally puts Catholic guilt to shame. Sorry, Catholic guilt. Now I feel guilty for shaming you. But at least now you know how I feel. You know, in this clip, Jim, he just puts such a funny spin on a feeling, on something that we're all very familiar with. This feeling of guilt. And increasingly in our culture today, we spend time, effort, money, we write books, we hold conferences and seminars, all aimed at this question, what can we do about our guilt? How can we make this guilt go away? And as I was thinking about this passage and preparing for this sermon, I started asking myself, what does the world have to offer us when we ask the question, what can we do about our guilt? And I began to realize That though they might say it's a philosophical problem, or maybe it's a religious problem, maybe it's a spiritual problem, or just an emotional problem, the answer is always the same. We just need to lower our standards for what is good, for what is acceptable. We talked a couple weeks ago, you remember the clip, if you were here, from Breaking Bad, where in a group counseling setting, the counselor was encouraging people to just accept themselves. And I wondered... Is that really all there is to it? I mean, in the face of all of our guilt and shame, is it enough for us to just accept that this is the best we can do? Or is there something more? Because honestly, 
this doesn't seem like it's working. At least not for long. Well, in this series, we've been asking the question, does it really matter what I believe? So far, we've asked the question, does it really matter what I believe about God? Does it matter what I believe about his word, the Bible? Does it matter what I believe about sin? And last week we talked, does it matter what I believe about who Jesus is? This week, we move along to the next question, which is, does it really matter what I believe about what Jesus has done? Or put another way, does it really matter that Jesus died? Well, according to our text today, we see that Jesus dying on the cross is our only hope to deal with our guilt and our shame. If we're ever going to get past this, if we're ever going to live a life that's more than just trying to avoid guilt or live through it or tolerate it, the cross is our only hope. And if we're going to see this, our text says, we need to see three things when we look at the cross. But before we get there, Will you bow your head and pray with me over this message? Father, I feel the weight of preaching this that is central to being a Christian today. This that is central to all of history. So Lord, will you help me to get out of the way of this text and simply to explain what your word has already said? And further, God, will it find just fertile soil in our hearts so that deep roots can go down and grow up uh, something that will bear fruit, that will glorify you. It's by your power that we pray this. Amen. Well, to understand what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, we need to see three things when when we look at the cross. First, we need to see ourselves on the cross. If you were here a couple weeks ago, you'll remember we spent a whole sermon talking about sin. We heard from the Bible that humans are all sinful universally. And our text today has the same thing to say about that. And it tells us that sin has two consequences in every person. First, we are dead in our sins. Do you see it here in the text? Verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses. Not just dying, not just flirting with a dangerous line, not just walking a tightrope on a windy day. No, you're dead in your sin. Quick question, what kinds of things are dead bodies capable of doing? Nothing, right? Nothing at all. When I was in high school, we had this student teacher who told us a story about a time he was working in a morgue. I don't know how you get that job. At what point are you on Craigslist or working through the, looking through the one ads, and you're like, oh, the morgue has an opening. So anyways, he's working at this morgue, and his job is just grunt work. It's just kind of moving bodies around. And he told us that he learned a very valuable lesson one day, which is that people can kind of end on an inhale sometimes, and so there's tr- air trapped in their lungs. So... Not knowing this, he goes to move this body from one place to another and moves it just right so that the air can escape. And as he's lifting this body up, he hears from the body, (sighs) he said he broke the land speed record getting out of that hospital. He was so terrified. It took him a week just to go back into the hospital. 
And if that, if that had happened to me, whatever clothes I was wearing, you just have to throw them away. They'd be so thoroughly destroyed because dead bodies aren't supposed to do that, right? They can't do anything. And this is the state we are in. Because of our sin, we are dead. We also see here that because of our sin, we are in the uncircumcision of our flesh. What in the world does that mean? Well, this is a nod back to the Jewish faith that a lot of the people, the Christians reading this letter would have come from. To be circumcised, much like baptism is for us, is a physical sign that we are in a relationship with God. So, to be uncircumcised, as we are if we are in our sin, is to be separated from God, to be out of a relationship with him. And you'll remember, if you know the story, that when first sin entered into the world, what's the first thing Adam and Eve did? After they put on some clothes, they went and hid from God. Because something had already put a barrier between God and humanity. And after he gives out the judgment, he casts them out of his presence for their own good. And to protect them, he puts an angel with a sword of fire guarding the way back to God. To be in sin is to be separated from God. So, do you ever wonder why you feel guilty about stuff? This question that the world keeps trying to answer? Well, maybe it's because you're guilty about stuff. Maybe, it's, maybe guilt is not just this emotion, this irrational, unfounded thing we need to do away with, but maybe, maybe guilt is just good common sense. It just points to what's real about us, to an objective reality that we are dead and we are separated from God. We need to see ourselves up on that cross. Now, too often, this right here is where people stop listening. Oh, there's another Christian holier than thou up there trying to make himself feel better by telling everybody else that they're sinful and going to hell. Well, if that's you, don't tune out yet. Because while our sin is certainly central to this message, it's not the end. It's not the end. So here comes the good news. The good news is that we're not on the cross. We should be, but we're not. Someone is there in our place. And it's not just anyone. If we're all dead, if we're all separated from God, then putting one dead body up on the cross in the place of another really doesn't accomplish anything. No, we need to see God on the cross. God as a man. God taking the place of humanity. Our own text tells us this. Look back a couple of verses at verse 9. For in him, that's Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is God. Not just a third God. Not just a God by association because he's God's son. This is the God who created the whole world. This is the only God who we are to worship. And he's on that cross dying. Why? What would possess the God of the universe to become a part of his creation? And not just a part of his creation, but to die. 
And not just to die, but to die a humiliating, excruciatingly painful, long death on a cross. Why would God do this? Well, there are some who would have us believe that God, Jesus, died on the cross just to show us that he loves us. He just wants us to know how much he values us, so he went and just died on the cross. Now, with all due respect to people who preach this message, I personally can't think of a single less useful way to prove love than just needlessly dying. Can you? Last week, Courtney and I found out that in December, Lord willing, we're going to have a little baby boy. We are so excited for this. And already I find myself praying over this boy, praying with this boy. Um, I, I haven't met him yet, but I love him more than I can put into words. So let's say one day I feel the need to prove to him how much I love him. So I take him over to Main Street to watch the streetcar. So in this scenario, this is way in the future. Like, he's probably 18 by now, ready to go to college. (laughs) And we're watching the streetcar go by, and I say, Son, this is how much I love you. And I jump in front of a passing streetcar, and it kills me. That would be so stupid. I haven't proven to him anything. The only thing that's changed is he's now fatherless and sitting there wondering, what in the world just happened? But if one day I saw my son crawling out onto Main Street, unaware of the danger of all the passing cars and the coming streetcar, and I ran screaming out into the street and I grabbed him and I threw him out of the way to safety, but I was hit and killed my son would know exactly how much I love him. Not because I just died arbitrarily or meaninglessly, but because I took his place in front of the streetcar. Because I saved him from something. Because I died so that he could live. This is the greatest form of love. Jesus himself tells us this when he says, greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. God is up on that cross because it's the only way to deal with our guilt, with our shame, with our condemnation, with the debt that we have to him. In all of his infinite power, God can't just wish away our guilt. That would make him unjust. But God is just. And he also loves us more than we could possibly imagine or hope. So, God takes our place on the cross. God takes on the punishment we deserve and sees it all the way through to the end, which is death. It's the cosmic switcheroo. John Stott, a theologian, says it the best when he says, the essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We should be on the cross. But we're not. God is there in our place. So is that it? Is this finally where the story ends? Has God earned us, taken on our punishment, earned us freedom, and then stayed dead? No. No, this isn't the end of the story either. 
after we see that we should be the ones on the cross, but that God is there in our place, we see, we should see, life unleashed on the cross. We need to see life unleashed on the cross. This is kind of weird for us to think about, isn't it? Because if we want to see life unleashed, we usually don't go to look at a method of execution. But Jesus is not still dead. And because he is alive, and because he died for us, then if we are in him, we can be alive too. So what sort of life is it that is unleashed on the cross? Well, our text tells us that there are three characteristics of this life that is unleashed on the cross. First, those who are alive in Christ are forgiven. Their sins are forgiven. All that guilt, all that shame, everything we spend so much time and money and effort trying to get rid of, it's gone. It's paid for. Your sins are forgiven. And it is so because Jesus dealt with the root issue instead of just ignoring it or thinking differently about it. He acknowledged it and dealt with it. Just like I did with my knee when I was in track. High school track. I tore up a lot of cartilage in my knee um, during one meet. And now let me ask you this question. Am I standing before you today using that knee because I just lowered my standard for healthy knee and I just thought differently about the pain that was shooting through my body? No. I'm running around today. Well, I'm walking around today. No. I'm standing here today because when I tore up the cartilage in my knee, I went to a doctor and got surgery on it. I got it fixed. Jesus didn't forgive us just by lowering his standards for holiness or righteousness, just asking less of us. He paid our price. He forgave our sins by acknowledging the true depth of the problem and taking it on himself. Not just part of our sins. Do you see here in the text? He has forgiven us at the end of verse 13 all of our sins. Which means that even though we are dead, we can be alive. Which means that even though we are separated from God, we can be with him again in the relationship we were created to have with him. Life unleashed on the cross has the forgiveness of our sins. Next, it has an obliterated record of debt. How cool does that sound? I mean, imagine you get your... Um, credit card statement in the mail this week, or maybe your school loan statement, and you realize, I cannot pay this. So you go to the headquarters of Visa or MasterCard or the bank or whatever, and you say, look, I'm so sorry I spent your money. I can't pay you back. So they say, okay, you know, date of birth, social security, address. They look you up, and they say, you know, we have no record of you in our system. What was your name again? How much did you owe? You say, um... Gabe Coyle, I'm on my way out of here real quick. (laughs) How cool would it be if your record of debt was just gone? That is what Christ has achieved for us on the cross. So to make sure we understand this, we're going to do something today that we don't normally do. Okay, We're going to learn a little Greek. Who's excited about learning some Greek? (laughs) 
nice. I expected you guys to start crying. On your card, or on your uh, chair, rather, we've given you these cards. They're little flashcards, and it's just one word. I'm not asking too much of you. It's just one word we're going to learn today. So on the front here, where all the, the pretty squiggly lines and shapes are, this is the Greek word that says, or is read, ex alefo. Everyone say, ex alefo. Wow, you guys are good at Greek. Uh, I'm feeling kind of self-conscious right now. Um, ex alefo. That's the word, if you look in your text at verse 14, right at the beginning, by canceling the record of debt. Your text might also say, um, blotted out, having blotted out the record of debt. Now, we don't normally pass out cards like this because we want you to have confidence in the English translations of the text. You should. I do. Our church does. But every once in a while, we just want to make sure that the full weight of the text is not lost on us. So flip your card over and look at the back, the definition. To ex alefo something is to cause something to cease by obliterating any evidence to eliminate, to do away with, to wipe out. This is what Christ has done to our debt. It's gone. It is wiped out totally. Well, when I was growing up, this is where I thought the story ended. When we talk about the gospel, when we talk about what Christ has accomplished for us, that we got a clean slate. Um, and this led me to believe things like, well, once you become a Christian, everything that led up to that point is forgiven. It's good, it's all good, it's forgotten. But then, you know better, because you're a Christian now. So now, God is watching you. Now you've got to get it right. I wish I had read this passage at that point in my life, because the story doesn't even end here. As if it's not good enough that our debt, our sin, is gone. God takes it one step further. The life unleashed on the cross has enemies who are disarmed and shamed. Because our enemy, he's not just the tempter, he's the accuser as well. He's the ad company, he's the credit card company, and he's the bill collector. He tempts us to sin, and then he gets us in trouble for it. And when I was little, I had this down to a science with my sister. Every single Sunday morning on the way home from church, for, I'm serious, like years, this script played out. We'd be driving home, my dad driving, my mom sitting in shotgun, the two of us in the back, and I would just reach over and hit her. Because I knew what she would do. What are you going to do when your sibling hits you? She hits me back. So I hit her again, and she hit me back. And I would keep going until she hit me just loud enough for me to go, ow, you didn't have to hit me so hard. I was just playing around. And before she could plead her case, my parents would rain down judgment on her from the front seat every single week. And this, this is what Satan does to us. He tempts us to sin, and then when he do, he goes before God and says, See, look, I told you they're a screw-up. They're not worth saving. I told you. But because God has ex alefoed our debt, he can turn back to Satan and say, Prove it. And Satan's got nothing. 
It's not just that he can't prove it beyond a reason of a shadow of a doubt. It's not just that he, you know, has a kind of a bad argument. He has nothing whatsoever to present before God against you. Nothing. Because your debt is gone. Satan is totally disarmed. And he's also been put to open shame. Your text might also say that uh, he was made a public spectacle of. And this refers back to a practice at the time that this was written by the Roman army. Because they didn't have the flow of information we have. If you wanted to hear about something totally exciting and awesome, uh, some victory somewhere in the world, like maybe Germany at the World Cup, if you wanted to hear about that, you couldn't the way we do, which is instantaneous. You almost can't not know about it, right? But at this time, they didn't have this full of information. So what the Roman army would do was they would have a parade from the city that they conquered or the country that they conquered back to Rome. And in the parade, you'd see the Roman military all dressed up in their garb, and they'd be carrying the treasures, the spoils of war. And then behind them, in shackles, were the rulers and authorities of the land they conquered. You see, the army was making a public spectacle out of them. Telling every place they passed, which were other cities that they had conquered in the past, every place, these people have no authority in this world. They are utterly and totally conquered. We have triumphed over them. The life unleashed on the cross, it's not just up until now we're good. But now you've got to work it out. Now you've got to be better. The life unleashed on the cross has an enemy, an adversary who is defeated totally and utterly forever. That's what leads Paul to say elsewhere. There is therefore now, right now, right in this moment, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. None whatsoever. It's gone. On the cross... We should see ourselves because we deserve that. But instead we see God who loves us too much to let us go there, loves us too much to let us carry our death, our separatedness from him to the grave, to eternity forever. So he steps in. He fixes what we could not fix because we're dead. And he gives us life, the life he created us to live. This is the way we say it in our statement of faith around here. We believe that Jesus Christ, as our representative and substitute, shed his blood on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. His atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only ground for salvation. Friends, this is good news. This is good news. And it's hard for me to hear because I'm a fixer. I fix things when they're wrong. This um, has led Courtney to be just an unbelievably patient person. And she comes home to me, at, and I'll ask her how her day is, and she'll, she'll say something like, oh, you know, my back hurts tonight. I'd say, oh, well, let's ice it. Um, do you need to go see the doctor? It'd probably be best if you went to see a doctor and got some exercises. You know what? Let's work it out in the budget for you to go see a doctor when she has no interest in any of that at all. She just wants me to hear her, but I'm a fixer. And so when I know, when I know 
that what I've done has hurt God, has offended him. It kills me that I can't fix it. But as we look at this passage today, we see God say, it's already fixed. Stop trying to earn me liking you. Jesus has already earned that for us. Stop trying to fix what's broken. You're dead. You can't do anything. In fact, if you even breathe, it's weird and scares people, right? But Jesus has put it back together for us. He has fixed it. So does it really matter that Jesus died? I've, I've tried, but friends, it matters more than I can say. There is nothing more important in this world than how you respond to this. The fact that Jesus offers this for you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, hear me. That you can have freedom from guilt and shame, the kind that you never believed was possible. When you mess up, when you hurt other people because of the things that you do that are wrong, he paid for that. Not just right now, or yesterday, or a year ago, but tomorrow. The sins you've yet to commit, they're paid for. You can have peace before God because of what Jesus has done. But maybe you've never responded to this before. Maybe this is the first or hundredth time you've heard this message, but you've never done anything about it. If that's you, if that describes you, let me say to you today, turn away from your sin. Turn away from your guilt and your shame. Let it go. Run to the one who has paid it all for you. In a moment, I'm going to go into a prayer time. And because, because of this message, because of the content in this message, I, I, I would not be preaching it properly if I didn't give an opportunity for anyone in this room who has never responded to this message before to do so today, right now. To give up your sin, your guilt, your shame, your condemnation to God. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to lead out in that prayer. And if that's you, if that describes you, just in your, in, your, in your mind where you're sitting, God hears you, pray out that prayer. Turn to Jesus. Turn to life unleashed on the cross. Let's pray. Father, we could have never, ever hoped for something as good as this. We could never, ever have hoped that while we were still dead in our sins, you would love us enough to save us. But indeed, God, that is how great your love is for us. Lord, for the people in this room who have never responded to this message of hope, to give up their sin, to submit to you as the Lord of their life and be free, Hear them now, Lord, as they pray with me. God, I am a sinner. 
I have done things to hurt you and hurt others. God, on my own, I can't fix this. But you have fixed it for me. God, I confess my sins to you and pray for your forgiveness.